So that was clearly part of a bigger video because it took, Dean Richard talked about Rodney having already told us about some of, some of the saints and we might see some of those other bits of, of, the, um, of the video later. Now offer it as uh, another perspective as we continue to be with Jesus in our own wilderness. Reflecting on whose we are, thinking about the four words that we thought about two weeks ago and then last week, and how those words, four words then speak to us, how do they describe us, and in light of that, what is ours to do. And as we continue to do that for ourselves, we've been offered this week a number of important pieces of scripture, and I'm going to make some comments about two of those. So the first of those is from Genesis 17, which is an affirmation and restatement of the covenant with Abraham and Sarai in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. The promise that Abraham would have a son with Sarai, and that's an important promise because he already has a son with Sarai's slave woman, Hagar, Ishmael. Uh, just as a kind of side note, for um, womanist black Biblical scholars and theologians in America, Hagar is seen as the first African in the Bible. She comes from Egypt. And like their forebears, she too was a slave. So she is a very important person for people writing out of that context. So uh, we have the promise there in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Uh, restated, uh, restated here in Genesis 17 that the son would be the father of a great nation and that they would be a blessing, a blessing for all people. Now this part of the promise is actually not restated in Genesis 17. That through this people, God would restore humanity and renew creation. Blessed to be a blessing. And we can read the rest of the biblical story, the Old Testament and the New Testament, as the story of God's faithfulness to this covenant. And that's certainly how Paul talks about it in the passage from Romans we heard today. And how the people of God, including us, have too often taken the blessing for ourselves and forgotten that we are to be a blessing for all creation. We have forgotten that we are to be a blessing. So I wonder how that helps us as we engage in our Lenten reflections this year. Last week, as Dean Richard uh, reminds us, in fact a few weeks ago, we heard Jesus declare, Now is the time, here comes God's kingdom. Let that blow your heart, let that blow your minds and change your, heart, change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. For Mark, the covenant is being fulfilled in Jesus. So that raises the question, what does God's kingdom look like? How will it come to be? important questions. What place does Jesus the beloved Son have in all of this? That's really what Jesus was wrestling with in the wilderness, that wilderness that Dean Richard showed us. And so last week we heard the story of 
Jesus be driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, where his identity as the beloved Son is tested. In Matthew and Luke, Mark is very sparse on details, but Matthew and Luke tell us that he was tempted with the ways of power and violence. And instead, Jesus chooses the ways of love. He is served by the angels, a lesson that will mark his own ministry. And that brings us to today's reading. One of the pivotal places in Mark's Gospel. It's at the heart of how Mark understands Jesus and what Jesus is on about. It's at the heart of how Mark understands what the Kingdom of God is about and how it will come to be. It's set near a place called Caesarea Philippi. And for us that's just an interesting piece of information. Uh, and we don't pay any attention to it. But Bonnie and I have been there. This is not one of my photos. Um, the next one is one of my photos. Uh, so, Caesarea Philippi is up in the hills above the Sea of Galilee. Uh, today it is very close to the border of Syria and Lebanon. It's the base of Mount Hermon. And it is one of the main sources for the Jordan River. It is seen as a holy place, a sacred place, a wahi tapu. So here we have the source of the Jordan River and behind it we can see a cave and this cave uh, at that cave a temple was built by the Greeks uh, to their god Pan well, how did the Greeks get to be there? well they got to be there with a guy called Alexander the Great and he exploded out of Macedonia down into Greece which he conquered and then across the bottom of Eastern Europe, through what we would call Turkey today, Anatolia, down into the Middle East, across Persia, defeating the great Persian Empire, into Afghanistan, down into parts of India, where he decided that was way too hot and tough, and he retreated, and then back down into Egypt and North Africa. It was a vast empire unlike anything seen in that part of the world before. And it was done through military might and violence. And these Greeks stayed behind after Alexander the Great died. His empire almost immediately dissolved into smaller empires. The Ptolemies in Egypt, Seleucids in Syria and the Middle East. In fact, I think Ptolemies had the Middle East to start off with. And so these Greeks who came through military conquest built the temple to Pan and the first city that was around this place. And then Herod the great son Philip built a new city in honour of the Roman Empire, of the Roman Emperor. And they too had come out of Rome through Greece, reconquering all of Alexander the Great's empire. They didn't get Persia, the Persians were going to have a bar of that. And their emperor, the Caesar, was seen as a god. So an honour to the Romans and to Caesar and their military might and the fact that he hurled his throne at, because Caesar said he could have it, he built the city, Caesarea Philippi, up on the hills 
call her up there in this wahi tapu. In, in essence, places built in honour of those who came with their powerful armies conquering through violence and military might. And to this place, Mark says, Jesus brings his disciples. Now, it's not on the road to anywhere. If you go there, you're going there. It's kind of like going to Gisborne or New Plymouth. You go there to go there. You're not going to go anywhere else. And in this place, Jesus asks, who am I? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But he does so in all likelihood, expecting Jesus the Messiah to act just as the people honoured in this place had acted. Just as Alexander the Great had acted. Just as the Romans had acted. He was hoping that eventually Jesus would evoke the power of God and defeat the Roman legions, overturn the leadership in Jerusalem that were collaborating with them, and rid the land of vestiges of Roman and Greek influence and culture like Caesarea Philippi. That they would be cleansed of all of that and a pure Jewish homeland would be restored. That it would be that kingdom would be established through the use of military force and violence just as Alexander and the Roman emperors had. And Jesus knows this. That's why they're there. But he also knows that that is not the way of the covenant. It is not the way of God's kingdom. As he learned in the wilderness, that way is the way of love. That way is replicating the service he had received for himself from the angels and offering that to others. The way of God's kingdom is offering God's mission of healing, love, healing, love, not violence. Particularly to the poor, to the marginalised, the rejected and the suffering. Jesus also knows that his way will disrupt the powers of his time and they will lead to rejection and death. So when Peter chastises Jesus for teaching that he will be rejected and killed by the chief priests and elders, Jesus rebukes him. And he names Peter's way the way of Satan, which one of my commentators that I read offered these words instead, the tempter, snake in the garden, the introducer of hesitation, the mixer of motivations, the flaunter of red herrings, the sidetracker of mission, the setter of one's minds on human things. And he orders Peter to take his place as a disciple, behind, following, not in front. Get behind me. What did, what did Jesus say to Peter and Andrew right at the beginning? Come, follow me. Means they're behind. Because the way of violence and power is not God's way. The way of God is to love God by loving our neighbour as ourself. And this way is very disruptive to the powers of this world. 
and will bring a response from the powers of this world. So Lent is a time to pay attention to how God is disrupting our world with this mission of healing love and to hear the invitation for how we might join that disruptive work. Jesus invites Peter to join him in this way and Peter will follow and he will eventually pay the price. And Jesus invites us to follow that way because in this way is life, resurrected life. We don't do it for any rewards, we don't do it for any bonus points. We do it because we know that in this way is life now. During our Lenten studies, we've been, uh, we will last week and in the weeks ahead be looking at, um, we are looking at what it means to be an Anglican and as part of that we are looking at uh, some of the Anglican heroes of the past. So we looked at three groups of Anglican heroes of the past and they were all people who had followed Christ and had paid the price. So the first of those were Ridley and Latimer who were burnt at the stake in 1555 by Mary. Uh, and they were burnt at the stake because they were the Protestant leaders of the Church of England. And Mary, a good Catholic, wasn't going to have a bar of that, so she executed them and Cranmer in Oxford. So you can go to Oxford and stand, or you can't stand on the spot because there's a big cross there. But you can see the place where they were burnt at the stake. And then we heard about the story of Kiriopa and Manihira, uh, two rangatira from Taranaki who came across from there to the people of Tukanu because they wanted to bring the gospel of peace and reconciliation to these people whom they had been at war with for a long time. And they wanted to end that and to bring peace between their two people. And they were martyrs before they were able to speak. But through their deaths, the gospel was able to, preach, to be preached and <coughs> reconciliation was achieved. So you can go to Tukanu, to the little Anglican church there, and see their graves. That was in 1867. And then we heard about the Melanesian brother who went to visit Harold Keke in 2003 uh, to talk to him about what he was doing, and he was killed. And they, normally religious, were treated well and with respect in the Solomon Islands, even through the darkest of times. And... Uh, so six other Melanesian brothers went to find out what had happened to him, and they too were martyred. <coughs> A week ago, we remembered Archbishop Janini Luam, who was the Archbishop of Uganda. He was born in 1922, as you can see there, he was elected a bishop. Uh, for Northern Uganda in 1969 and Archbishop of the Church in Uganda in 1974. When Idi Amin came to power through violence and military might uh, and enforced that through violence, the Anglican bishops constantly wrote letters of protest, were public in their protest against the human rights abuses, against the killings and against the disappearances. Eventually, on the 16th of February 1977, Archbishop Lewin took a personal note detailing the Anglican bishops' protests to Idi Amin. He was arrested shortly afterwards, along with two cabinet ministers, 
Uh, and the next day it was announced that there'd been a car accident as they were taken into custody and uh, as they tried to overpower the driver and they'd been killed. When the bodies were released, it was clear they hadn't died in a car accident, that they had been beaten and eventually executed. When he went to the Idi Amin's palace, he knew that that would probably be his death. But he chose to say the words, to stand with all those who were suffering, and to declare God's healing love for those people. Sometimes following Christ is difficult. So this week we are invited, where do we stand? Where are the disruptive activities of God in this world? And what cost do we expect to pay as we stand there? I invite you to spend a moment reflecting on that.